Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome, everyone, to this joint GGV96 and Seneca podcast live recording. I'm Zara Zhang, and I'm joined by my 96 co-host, Hans Tung, managing partner at GGV Capital, and by Kaiser Kuo, host of the Seneca podcast and producer of the 96 podcast. Please join me in welcoming our special guest, Professor Yasheng Huang. We're delighted to have Professor Huang with us today. He is the International Program Professor in Chinese Economy and Business and Professor of Global Economics and Management at the MIT Sloan School of Management. And he's the founder and head of the China Lab and the India Lab at MIT. Yash, I'm so glad that you could join us here. Uh, it was such a pleasure talking to you for Cynical last year in San Francisco. Uh, your straight talk and your frankness is always quite the breath of fresh air. So let, let, let's deal with the elephant in the room first. <laughs> I think uh, we all know that's the trade war. Uh, we, we've seen volleys in both directions now. First, the steel and the aluminum tariff, and then a very subdued Chinese response. Then you had the $60 billion putatively over the 301, the WTO complaint. Then China's announcement, uh, and, and now just on Thursday this week, a threat of an even larger uh, tariff of $100 billion by by Trump. So it's quite clear that the Trump administration really is focused, is opposed to uh, one particular target of, of this tariff. I mean, it's, it's China's new tech-focused industrial policy that's called Made in China 2025. Um, America has basically always opposed industrial policy. You had METI in, in Japan in the 1980s, which is a target of American ire, for instance. Uh, what is it that they object so much to in Made in China 2025? And, and is there... Is there actually something to object to? Is there, is there something that's deliberately quite unfair? Stay very close. Okay. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Kaiser, and very good to share the podium with uh, Hans and Zara as well. Uh, yeah, this is a big elephant uh, in the room, and I think the, the possibility is a real one that things can get out of the control, right? So essentially, you have an escalation of the conflicts, and the more you escalate, it's more difficult to walk down from that high position that you have made very, very clear. And so in terms of your specific uh, question about what the US uh, is, uh, is objecting uh, uh, through this tariff uh, action, I guess there are kind of three things and falling in two categories. One is a, a macroeconomic one. Uh, which has to do with the trade imbalances, and there are different calculations about exactly what is the what is the right uh, number. But, but I think, by and large, there's a you know a decent consensus that U.S. has a persistent trade deficit with China. Maybe the size is not as big as as they say. Uh, complications are e- e- enormous in terms of the 
uh, how do you count processing trade and things like that. So that's one, that's on the more macroeconomic side. On the more sort of microeconomic side, this has to do with the issue of IP, right? So Trump actually used that term, which is uh, IP theft, right? And you know, we can have a debate whether or not trade tariff is the right Remedy instrument for, right, right. to deal with that. I don't think it's the right instrument to deal with even the macroeconomic issue, but for macroeconomic issue, it's definitely the wrong, wrong instrument. And then there's the political sort of security uh, issue, which has to do with how a incumbent established power deals with a rising power mm -hmm. that has such a fundamentally different Value. political, economic, right, socioeconomic institutions yeah. and values, right? And that's unprecedented. Yeah, it's a multi-dimensional near It's multi-dimensional. You know, there was a Soviet Union before, but Soviet Union, we kind of always knew their weaknesses, right? right. Uh, and they had great ballet, but what consumer <laughs> products did we want? <laughs> we wanted like a stolichnaya vodka, very yeah. good vodka, but nothing much else we want from Soviet friends, right? Yeah, but there's nothing to be uh, trivia about uh, ballet. I mean, Soviet Union had signs, right? There's an excellent... Yeah, yeah. yeah no, they launched Sputnik yep. before us, but little yeah, basketball, they'd make beep, beep yeah. noise. But I, I won't compete with you in uh, imitation of okay. uh, uh, Russian accent. Uh, but, you know, the Soviet had science, uh, Soviet had physics, Soviet had, uh, uh, Soviets uh, had uh, biology and chemistry. Uh, the, 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 the fundamental difference is... WeChat. They didn't have WeChat. They, they, didn't have <laughs> they definitely don't have that. <laughs> uh, they, they didn't have that. Yeah, that, that's true. Right? But, but neither China at that time, right? right, right so let me, let me put, it, uh, point, point that out. Uh, but the fundamental difference is that Soviets never used their science for economics, right? right? And so there was a gap between how advanced the science was which was mostly geared toward defense, mm -hmm. right? right? Sputnik and yes. all of that, we, we all know that. It was never really applied to economic development. So Soviet economy was horrible, right? right? Whereas the country actually had, you know, established the scientists, uh, uh, excellent scientists. There's a great book, by the way, written by MIT uh, historian. The title of it is uh, Lonely Ideas. Mm. The book is about how the Soviets invested heavily in science and tech, maybe technology heavily in science, but never gained benefit from that, huh. right? So wow. this is a huge difference between Soviet Union and China. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the fear on the part of the United States, let, let's sort of separate two issues. One is whether we should fear China from the U.S. point of view. The other is whether or not superficially there is an objective reason for a average person in the United States to say, wow, look at that country that has a sort of a nominally communist uh, uh, system and, and you know, uh, one-party system and all of that, plus science, plus technology, plus hands, right? So economic benefits. Especially the, the hands uh, equation, right. uh, which is really a you know, to tips that the balance. You're talking about VC, about VC and, yeah, the v no, the VC, right? So the VC, the ecosystem. So if you look at Boston, Silicon Valley, right? You, basically, you need three things, right? Scientists, uh, 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 technology, scientists slash technologists, entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. and VC. VC. China has all three, yeah. right? So you know, we can debate about the quality and the quantity is impressive, right? China now 
in terms of uh, you probably have more data than than I do. Quantity has a quality all its own, right? <laughs> yeah. No, but but That's the thing, true. but let's so 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 size matters, right? So so uh, uh, you have both, you Kaiser, yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes you do have trade out, but but the thing is, let let me put it this way: if you don't have a big scientific establishment, big VC establishment, the probability of having stellar signs and stellar investment is actually low, right? right? So you kind of need a size because precisely the probability is low. You need a size to make the absolute number high. And this is really, in terms of country-to-country comparisons, it is the absolute number that matters, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not so much the ratio to Chinese, you know, success rates and you know if you can use sort of a, the success access and, and maybe that can be low in China but as long as the number is large to the other country that's significant right so sometimes we we need to establish our benchmarks more clearly so you think that this is what's producing the anxiety around industrial policy in terms of industrial policy it is true that if you look at Silicon Valley Boston there was less of an overt industrial policy uh, explaining the development of Silicon Valley and, and Boston 128. But let's face it, right? So MIT benefited tremendously from Defense federal funding. Federal funding. DARPA created the so DARPA. And, and so it's not explicitly designed to you know, increase the trade surpluses. Right. Right? So this is where the mercantilism comes in. Right. And the mercantilism is an idea that first you use the government uh, directly, explicitly to advance economic goals, and secondly, you focus on trade. Right? So China has a flavor of both and that worries uh, uh, people here. And it's, it's, for me, it's surprising to hear people in the U.S. keep on talking about Chinese government's role at funding all this research, funding all those, putting all this money to work, as if that made a huge difference. If I look at the, the actual facts of how Tencent and Alibaba become amongst the most valuable company in the world, they have very little, like this much government funding. Yeah, yeah, that's it's, true. It's, it's, yeah. It's, 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 it's almost no impact at all. It's, it's, they, those two companies can, can do well if the government doesn't bother them. Yeah, and they I work mean, hard it, to make sure the government doesn't bother them too much and to find a way to coexist. So many of China's internet companies were founded by people who were either Americanized or actually had been in the United States for an awfully long time. Like Robin they, Lee for Baidu. Sure, sure, absolutely. And you know, with American venture capital listing on American... Uh, and most people who were making money yeah. from uh, Tencent and Baidu and Alibaba were Rice Americans, right. were Americans and people from outside of China. Right. Preaching to the choir, man. Yeah, try to make that argument with Trump, right? Yeah, it's very but, difficult. Yeah. I do want to ask you about the, the the trade number. You know, Trump says 500 billion. Uh, you know, I think the, the real number, you know, the nominal number is 350 maybe. But then... Well, I mean, that's... that's I think focusing on them, that number is a is, mistake, is okay. right? So whether it's 500 or 300, the reason is that Fundamentally, the trade imbalances with China are driven by the difference in savings rate. Exactly. Countries, exactly. Right? So, if you don't incur 500 billion or 300 billion dollars of trade imbalances with China, then you have to do that with somebody else. Right. 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 If so, you want to borrow that money, if you want to, you know, right. if you want so people to show up at your treasury option, you right? you consume a lot, right, relative to your savings rate. That means, by definition, you that you have to s sort of borrow, and From then somewhere. that's a deficit, right? That's a tr so essentially, it's the difference between the capital account, which is importing the money from the rest of the world, 
and the trade account, which is the deficit, right? China has exactly the, the opposite, opposite right? So if China doesn't have a huge, so everything else being equal at its current level, if China doesn't have this huge trade surplus with United States, then the savings and investment and consumption ratios are such that it has to have a trade surplus with, with someone, or, 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 or China's no, with somebody else, or, or Chinese consumer can spend more and consume yeah, more. That's a, that's a legitimate discussion to have, which is the the discussion is really about why you need to have such a big surplus. trade surplus in the first place, right. rather than whether or not this is the right way to deal with it. So so that discussion has to do with the consumption balance, uh, consumption issues, and maybe you're investing too much. Maybe you're not consuming to, uh, enough. Uh, enough, right? That's a legitimate discussion to right. have. I wish the, the discussion was around that. Because well, as VCs, we actually actively fund companies that are riding the consumption upgrade wave in China. Right. We want to see consumer, right. consumer, right. consumer consume more, not just locally, but from the rest of the world as well. Yeah, so, 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 so that's, a, that's a both analytically right discussion to have as well as an economically meaningful discussion Correct. to have, right? So for, for people like you and, and you know, for my uh, relatives in China, I, I wish that they could consume more. So, so the discussion there is what is constraining their consumption and why their savings rate is, is so high. And that's a... But, but, but Lack the, of a social safety net. That's a social safety mm -hmm. net, yeah. So, but that's a discussion that, that, that's a, about domestic policy issues rather than about cross-border policy issues. So right. country to country, they typically don't have those discussions. No, they, 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 they don't. Even though, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting to note that oh, if you are going to slap a bunch of tariffs, I mean, is it really going to hurt China so much or is it just going to accelerate the, the rebalancing? I, my own view is that it is hurting China more than it is hurting the U.S. Right? So, so strictly in economic terms. So if you think about what the U.S. is uh, uh, what kind of products they are imposing tariffs on. These are from Chinese industries that are competing with the U.S. Right. industry. Right? So essentially, China sort of, in economics, we distinguish between absolute advantages and comparative advantages. China has a comparative advantage in light industry, labor-intensive industry, but it is producing these, you know, AI companies, drone companies, DJI, you know, uh, uh, companies like that, that are gaining in terms of absolute advantages vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. Uh, companies. So the U.S. is targeting those guys, and those are competing with the U.S. companies, whereas the Chinese imports from the U.S. are basically complementary with uh, Chinese society, Chinese uh, businesses. You know, we're talking about soybeans, yeah. right? So uh, soybeans... Agricultural uh, goods. Yeah, agricultural goods, right? So soybeans uh, go into a tofu, I guess. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah. Is that one of the applications? There may be other applications. A lot of it. Hands up is pig. Also, doujiang. Doujiang, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, doujiang. So, so, yeah, so if you think about the supply chain, right? So, so essentially, soybean is the upstream product. Right. Doujiang is a downstream product, uh -huh. right? And your mouth is at the very end of the <laughs> downstream. So, and, and so that's one. Uh, so essentially, it is it is it is uh, it is complementary. And the other uh, effect on China is agriculture is a part of the core inflation, right? So China cannot afford to have, you know, inflation, right? Right. right so. Right. 
So it really does hurt it, China. It, it does have more of an impact on the Chinese macroeconomic situation than it does on the United States. And also, if you look at the size, right, China depends on the U.S. in terms of the export much more than the other way around, right? So if you just cut off all the trade, right, you know, U.S. is losing $150 billion. China is losing, you know, whatever, 500, right, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So, so it, it does have a bigger effect on China than it does on the United States. Yeah, I'm tempted to do Politically, it. Uh, it, it will be, I, I, I think a lot of times trade war is about politics, right? So basically who is going to blink first, right? So there, I don't really have a very good way of reading the situation. To the extent that I have to say something about it, I will say the following, which is we typically think democratic societies are more vulnerable to, to political backlash, sure. right? Because businesses, people speak up, right? People who are losing from trade wars speak up. Mm -hmm. In an authoritarian society, you don't, you don't have that. So typically we say that a democratic country has a lower tolerance for, 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 for pain, right? right? And so there's actually research that shows that democracies don't go to war with each other, right. in part because they have a low toler tolerance right. for pain. Which is good. Which is good, which, which is one of the reasons I support democracy. Correct. Whereas in China, you know, you censor this, you censor that. Even if, if you have pain, you don't express it. In this particular situation, though, uh, I, I'm not so sure. The pain is manifest. It's there when you go, go to the grocery store or when you go to the market. Well, so, morning, but right. Trump is not targeting consumer products, at least for now. Only for now. He's targeting industrial products. So right? far, right. That right. will have a feed-on effect. But, uh, I'm talking about China's own uh, levying of pork, um, corn. And, oh, yeah, so that's directly affecting the consumers, right? right. So, exactly. But, right. but if, if that society has a higher tolerance for pain, right, then one would imagine that it is going to be the U.S. who is going to blink first, right? So let's US, talk about US what, what they're targeting in the U.S. What, what, right. U.S. business will complain more. Well, so, 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 so this is where it's, get, it's getting interesting. U.S. businesses unlike before, are now split on China. Mm -hmm. So before, uh, 10 years ago, uh, the U.S. business community was almost unified in terms of supporting China trade yep. and investment trade, with China, okay. opening yep. uh, multi, uh, uh, MFN, right? Yes. Uh, most favored nation trading yep. status, uh, WTO, yep. and, uh, and all of that, yep. and not going after China in the aftermath of Tiananmen, yep. right? U.S. business community was unified. Yep. Uh, now engage China, China will Engage be with China, yeah. and so essentially what is known as engagement policy. Right. the Clinton administration. The Clinton yep. uh, administration. Yep. And, and even George. And, and George, George, yeah, yeah, George, yeah, George, George uh, W. Bush. George H. W. Bush. But the business community now is split. The reason it has split is because China has increasingly become more bi-local. Uh, you have to sell yeah, stuff in, right. in, 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 right. in China. And it's, it's made harder over the last five, ten years for foreign companies to do more business in China. Correct. There are like exceptions, like Apple is doing well, and Starbucks is doing well, and uh, you know, in general, Pepsi is doing well. There are exceptions that are doing well. Caterpillar is doing well. Caterpillar is doing well. But for the most part, like, you know, even IBM, Microsoft, to some extent, are being affected by Chinese government wants everything buy local. In some sense, you can argue that the Trump trade war um, uh, demands and situation is making China think harder about being a global citizen. 
Yeah. So. And, and so in some sense, and, and we see this in internet investing all the time, you want to have two com uh, powers or companies or countries kind of compete against each other yeah. to keep each other honest. They don't have to be nice. They have to respect and fear each other to do the right things. And in that respect, from well, our program VCs, we, we don't mind that. Yeah, but, but, but hence, it can get out of the control, right? Yes, so it essentially can. Essentially, it's a high-stake high poker game. Right, and it's a high-stake uh, poker game. And it could have that kind of effect that you, you want, and, and definitely that would be the effect I want. We, we, we all want, that's but right. But you never know. You never know. So the, the risk it has increased a lot, the, the risk has it's just in the last few days, yes. right? So now Trump is escalating this to 100 billion. That's right. Uh, so how do you, I mean, if you walk down, I mean, if you walk down from 50 billion, yep. right? You know, even as an MIT professor, I know something about math, right? So <laughs> then you go down to 25, now it's 150 right. it billion, worse. Right. right? So <laughs> you, you essentially frame the discussion at a higher level. Right. Once you frame that discussion, and also uh, this is something that I have noticed in, in, in China. I mean, there the are young Chinese uh, here. The young Chinese in China are ex much more nationalistic, nationalistic than when I was a, a young Chinese. Because right. <laughs> you have seen them. You have seen something. I was young before. Right. Right? So, <laughs> you know what? We were all nationalistic back during, you know, the, no, the I was, founding. No, we were of not the, as much. I was, I was not nationalistic. Because uh, you see the shortcoming of the system back then. Yeah. So you, you were more That's objective. Right. So we were closer to the cultural evolution. So we Correct. kind of knew what we that see, system how was. How bad it could be. Right? Right. 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 So That's right. The current uh, generation, you know, they play games. They, they don't really know that. They shop right? online. They shop online. Right? Great so, experiences overall. And, and also, I think they have this um, uh, sort of a, a wrong view about what GDP means, right? So the, the size of the GDP is big, right? The second uh, in the world. But per capita GDP is right in the middle of 198 countries right. in the world. So China is sort of a middle-ish middle right. kind of a, 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 a country. In, in the end, it's per capita GDP that matters. Yes. It's not the aggregate GDP, right? No. right? So. And just speaking from personal experience, I think Chinese students of my generation who come to the US to study actually want to go back these days um, because yeah. things actually work in China. They want to contribute. Uh, they want to make a lot of money. There are more opportunities there. It's harder to get a U.S. visa now. So there are okay. lots of push and, pull, <laughs> push and pull factors that are pulling them back home. And I think part of the reason um, for the, the reason why Chinese tech companies can grow so fast is because they can attract all these Western-educated sure. talents. Yeah, so I, 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 I think that's a very good thing. And, and I uh, celebrate uh, young people's uh, aspirations and all of that. I just, I just want to say that sometimes we need to be more cool-headed yeah, about more these, cautious. Uh, yeah, about these macro issues, Objective. right? So, yeah. I think don't translate the microeconomic optimism so blindly into macroeconomic <laughs> optimism, right? Okay. So, so I, I think there's, uh, you know. Uh, uh, China still has a lot of children in the countryside who are not being educated. Correct. 60 million left behind children. So yep. the country, you know, still, has still some challenges, has a lot of challenges. Overcome right? the challenges. Yeah, That's has a right. lot of challenges. So, so I, I just think that, and I would argue that if the young technologists from China Think about making money, that's great. But also think about how to use technology to solve these social problems. That, that would be also very good too, right?
I want to thank this week's sponsor, Casper Mattresses. We were delighted when Casper began supporting us. They make great mattresses that you buy online. Seneca listeners are invited to take advantage of Casper's competitive, limited-time Memorial Day sale offer. Their mattresses are cleverly designed to mimic human curves, providing supportive comfort for all kinds of bodies. Casper's breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with the right amount of both sink and bounce. The Wave features a patent-pending premium support system to mirror the natural shape of your body. And the Essential has a streamlined design at a price that won't keep you up at night. All of Casper's models are available at affordable prices because Casper cuts out the middleman and sells directly to you. And Casper mattresses are even more affordable right now with a Memorial Day offer to sweeten the start of your summer. You buy and chillax with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-a-trial and returns are hassle-free if you're not completely satisfied. With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars across Casper, Amazon and Google, Casper is fast becoming the internet's favorite mattress. The mattresses are delivered right to your door in a small how-do-they-do-that-sized box and you can be sure on your, of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. So please go to casper.com slash savings. That's casper.com slash savings to receive 10% off your order with any mattress purchase. This special offer expires May 29th, 2018. Terms and conditions apply. Casper.com slash savings to receive 10% off your order with any mattress purchase. This special offer expires on May 29th, 2018. Terms and conditions apply. Now, on with the show. I want to ask you a couple of questions. I, I mean, first, I want to ask you about uh, Americans' likely reactions. And I think, Zara, you should ask about, uh, about Chinese people's reactions to uh, the burgeoning trade war. Now, in the United, in the United States, so China has obviously targeted um, not just red states, not just swing yeah. states that went for Trump. You know, obviously, Boeing is not in a red state. It's in a very blue state. But uh, corn, again, soybeans and, and, uh, and, and pork, these do target uh, states that have been traditionally pro-Trump. Is this a smart strategy? I mean, or is this going too far? Is this is this crossing a line? Is this going to look like uh, playing, you know, meddling in American politics? How are Americans likely to respond to this? And maybe has China uh, picked a uh, maybe too obnoxious strategy? I, I think uh, so. The 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 one issue is what is the alternative, right? So I I think this is as a smart strategy as you can as you can play under the circumstances under the circumstances and but i i have a feeling you know i may be wrong uh, i have often been wrong i have a feeling that it may not work this time mm-hmm. trump is not a conventional politician his supporters there may be some here but i don't know but his supporters let's, let's are really hope not. <laughs> are sometimes are not super clear about their true economic interests right so and you know Many of their supporters would have a lot to gain from Obamacare, and, and he's the one who promised to demolish Obamacare. So the economic calculations may not work this time with him. So I, I was going to finish my earlier example about sort of the 
political capacity to bear pain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I actually think Trump has a quite a bit of political capacity to bear pain. Evidently. If you look at his, uh, <laughs> well, the Mueller investigation. Uh, uh, so what, what's, what's wrong with offending 1.4 billion people, right? So what, what more can they, can they do? And, and, and also, if you look at his approval rating, his approval rating is rising, right? Right in the middle of the trade war. Right. Um, so, and also, the business community is more split than before. Mm -hmm. And there is more of a bipartisan, uh, bipartisan consensus about this particular issue than there was before, right. right? Even the Democrats support some of the uh, uh, tariffs. So we're gonna go out for a cocktail tonight and we have to decide between a Moscow Mueller or a <laughs> dark and stormy Daniels. <laughs> Maybe a white Russian interference. <laughs> uh, I, I won't go there. Yeah, yeah so we won't go right. there. You can drink by yourself. <laughs> I'm, I'm ripping off jokes from my little brother from Facebook. Okay, anyway, uh, sorry about the Jay. So, Professor Huang, how do you think the ordinary people in China re are reacting to this? Are, are they rallying around the flag and boycotting Americans? What's that hashtag that I keep seeing now? What's that that or what is it? We, we, didn't, we didn't grow up, Chinese did not grow up out of fear. So, it's a, you know, more, you, whatever you want to you do, you know, give us more. Yeah, bring it on. Bring it on. Bring it, bitch. It's just like that kind of well, thing. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that's Kaiser speaking. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we don't take any responsibility. That's not uh, 906. <laughs> can beep it. I'll beep it. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> well, I, I, I think I, my own view, I, again, you know, I, I'm, I'm a professor, so I, I can say these things, uh, which is that I think the biggest fear is the lack of fear, right? And I think China... Uh, so if you look at Chinese economic uh, growth, right, if you look at Chinese macroeconomic uh, picture, we're talking about an economy that is still heavily dependent on investment-driven growth. Right. right. Consumption GDP, household consumption GDP ratio is about you know, 40, 39%, which is actually very low compared with major economies in the world. Yep, the US and Japan. So to, to, to sort of have more sustainable growth, you need to in decrease the investment, you need to increase the consumption, mm -hmm. and you need to have a healthy export mm -hmm. uh, growth. That's right. right? So if you curtail uh, uh, ex export now, right, to keep the growth rate as it is, you know, 6.5, 6.7, the only... Uh, uh, thing available to the policymakers is to increase the investment. Mm -hmm. More FAI, right? More FAI. And uh, then that means more bank uh, loans, more local uh, debt, uh, right, right. Uh, debt uh, driven uh, growth, more printing of the money. So the two parts of the economy that are healthy, the household consumption and the exports, we need both of them, right? So I would, you know, I, I, again, you know, as a professor, I would just swallow the bitterness, whatever, I would just say, okay, so uh, let's just have a, have a compromise and rather than sort of uh, playing on this uh, psychological nationalistic uh, uh, sentiment. Right. I think that's very, very dangerous right. um, because uh, nationalism 
has never been a friend to economic. Uh, from where we sit, kind of kind of see that the chance of Trump changing yeah. position, you know, because he, he always do stuff you just don't expect. Yeah. So there's a possibility that he will change. You look at China, um, it can change somewhat, but not too much. Okay. Um, so it, what was most likely happen in our view, at least in my personal view, is that things will get nastier for a while yeah. and see which side can take on more pain and make adjustments accordingly. And that's, it makes the whole thing a lot riskier yeah, yeah. Than, than, than ever before. But we could see this prolonged for a, for a while. In the but, long run, do you think this whole episode will go down in history as a hiccup in the, uh, more, in the bigger trend of globalization? Or do you think globalization is actually stoppable by individual leaders? Globalization has been stopped before. By individual leaders. And individual by, by, by wrong policy choices. If you look at... Well, one, are you talking about the Smoot-Hawley tariff? Smoot-Hawley tariff. Yeah. And if you look at the sort of the cross-border investments yep. as a share of worldwide GDP, the world reached a peak in just before the uh, First World War. Right. right. And then for the next 50 years and 60 years, yep. it went downhill. It went downhill. Right? So... So, so, you know, maybe with hands around, things will be different. Who knows, right? So, but, but I'm not a uh, blind optimist, right? So the, if you make wrong policy decisions, you can really go down a path that you regret uh, later. So in terms of your question whether or not this is a uh, short-term hiccup or not, I, I actually don't think this is a short-term thing. And I think... You know, sometimes we distinguish between structural component and cyclical component. In the past, the U.S.-China relationship has been governed by cyclical up and down, right? right? Cyclical With up and down. With a high degree of codependency. But structurally, it was moving in a positive direction. direction. Right? So you, right. you have this sort of up and down, but you know, the, the, the long-term uh, trend lines are moving. The trend lines right. moving in the right direction. Right. I'm not so sure, right. and, and be, be, precisely because I see more evidence of bipartisan consensus getting harsher on China, right? right? Uh, Trump, obviously, uh, but also business community being split, right. right? And from the Chinese side, more nationalism, strong leadership, uh, you know, right. the country also, in my own view, is not implementing economic reforms uh, at a, at a, at a, uh, as fast as they should, mm -hmm. right? But reforms, you, you mean market liberalization reforms? Market liberalization, or, uh, right. Uh, so, foreign companies or what about regulatory reforms? Yeah, so, so if you look at FDI as a, as a measure of some sort of liberalization, that has been pretty flat. But, right. Yeah, so the, if you, it, more worrisome is the component of the total FDI inflow uh, in the early 1990s, sort of mid-1990s, much of the Chinese uh, FDI was uh, money fact, coming from Hong Kong. No, from yeah, Hong other Kong Chinese. Chinese. Went Singapore. 70%, right. right. you know, yes. something like that. And then it went down money, because money Western companies, yeah. Western companies began to invest. Japan, right. Europe, US, Germany, Europe. Uh, uh, United States. Yep. Now we're coming back to the situation in the early 1990s. Yep. The Hong Kong investments are outpacing Japanese investments, U.S. investments and European investments, right? Wow. So, you know, I, I have nothing against the Hong Kong investments, but I would argue that the U.S. investments 
European investments, Japanese investments bring to China technology and, and you know, management uh, in a way, I don't think Hong Kong investments can, can do that. Right, they're more indicative of broader global integration. Correct, correct. But, but I think what's different now than before for China is that we, we all hope China would do more economic reforms because it yeah. helps to have a seafood world when it's more balanced. Um, but what the signs we do see is that instead of being mil- choosing between being more militaristic and being more antagonistic versus economic reform, there's a third route, which is the uh, one bill, one real campaign. Yeah. So instead of depending on U.S. for export, why don't we sell more of our service business model and goods to Southeast Asia, to Central Asia, India, to, right. to Central Asia, to Eastern Europe, to Africa, to even Latin America? I think over the next 10, 20 years, you will see a lot more push by Chinese government aligning with the Chinese internet company to export and to expand into yeah. these other developing markets. Yeah. That's why the chance of more Chinese companies coming to the U.S. is less than more of these Chinese internet companies going out to these other developing market markets in the world will increase dramatically. Hans, this has felt very Seneca. Let's let's move this more to 996 territory and talk more about tech investment and stuff like that, right? What do you think? Is it time to shift it into that? Sure. Let's yeah, do let, it. Let's, let's do that. Uh, Professor Wang, you spend a lot of time studying um, Chinese uh, private enterprises as well. And you start with looking at SOEs early yeah. uh, and then start shifting to the private enterprises. And then even with uh, the China Lab, look at the Chinese internet companies. As you see shift from SOEs to private enterprise to internet companies, do you see the quality of management team, the sophistication of, of uh, management systems, and the uh, growth change quite a bit? Yeah. And, and is it commensurate with the, the, the change in, yeah. in right. yeah. so 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 this is an excellent uh, question. Um, so I founded China Lab and India Lab in 2008, and since then it has been uh, 10 years. We have worked with uh, uh, about 300 Chinese companies now, about 70 Indian companies now. So. As an academic, it's actually extremely hard to study management because we don't have data. Through the work I did in China Lab, I did have access, a lot of access. access uh, to Chinese entrepreneurial companies. Yes. The shift from sort of 10 years ago, uh, essentially if you, if you look at the type of projects we are doing vis-a-vis the type of projects we were doing 10 years ago, 10 years ago, most of the projects we were doing or about marketing, marketing overseas. You know, I have a product I want to sell to Japan, I want to sell to US, and you have a team, please help us you know, come up with a marketing plan you know, uh, how, how to sell overseas. Increasingly, the projects are about management, improving the management, human resource management, financial reporting controls, devising KPIs, things like that, mm-hmm. right? So essentially, there's a dramatic shift from the external orientation of these companies to internal capacity building mm-hmm. on the part of the companies we work with. I think, you know, this is not a systematic piece of data, but it is systematic enough to tell me that the Chinese entrepreneurial companies now put more value, more premium on management, right? So also before, if you look at Chinese uh, private sector companies, they had a simple structure. Right. One boss, everybody was a worker. Right. Right? Right. So essentially there's a missing management. Right. I would say 20 years ago, uh, it was irrational for Chinese to go to uh, business school. Right. <laughs> because <laughs> there's no way there's, to put you know, practice. You can't be a, a, a worker, right. Right? <laughs> although some 
Sure, but they, they don't want to be a worker. Right. And they can't be the boss well, no immediately, right? There's so no there's no management. Money management, there's no marketing manager, there's right. no finance. So the boss is doing everything uh, by himself or herself. Now you have a more sophisticated managerial system now. You have top management, you have middle management, you have line management. And I think this is really reflecting the dynamism and the, and the, and the rising quality of the Chinese private sector. Correct. Right? Um, so part of it is, uh, I think part of it is uh, uh, the, when the economy is uh, more competitive, right? You can't just rely on connections and right. government connections, although there's still, still that, some, right? right? So you cannot just rely on that. You have to rely on management know-how, but also technology, right? Technology is playing more and more important role. In our China Lab projects in the last three, three years, I would say, the ratio, the percentage share of the technology projects are now, you know, seventy percent. Uh, Not surprising. Yeah. So internet-related so or technology. Internet-related, uh, all sorts of you know, even the related. even the realistic uh, real estate uh, yeah. projects are uh, have a piece of technology. Uh, That's in right. Them, right. right? Yeah. So, so I, I think definitely on uh, at that level. Chinese economy is, uh, so I tend actually not to look at these macro numbers, right. like GDP and, uh, and all of that. I actually think that these microeconomic indicators are a more reliable indicator of healthier, uh, how uh, Chinese economy is getting healthier. Yasha, you spent a lot of time looking at India, and of course you run the yeah. India Lab as well. Yeah, sure. I'm really curious about your impressions of the, I mean, either just sort of qualitative or quantitative, uh, from having worked with both the China Lab and the India Lab at the State of Entrepreneurship, and maybe yeah. make some compared, you know, be totally politically incorrect and talk about the, you know, the the, 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 the Chinese and the Indian engineering style, the, the management style, the the, uh, the entrepreneurial style. Yeah. So so uh, I I also run uh, India Lab, and it's, it's so just as an anecdote, uh, five years ago, ten years ago, uh, when China Lab and India Lab began. Mostly we had Indian students doing Indian lab, uh, India Lab, Chinese students doing China Lab. Mm -hmm. Now it's just the opposite now. The Chinese really? students want to do India Lab. Right. The Indian students want to do uh, China Lab. At all. And they, they, they are more uh, curious about uh, each other. And, uh, and by the way, I got interested in India a long time ago. And, and, and I was criticized for being uh, optimistic about India, uh, uh, but I think that you know India has, within the huge constraints it is facing, has done well. Well, right. So it is now able to grow seven percent. That's actually very impressive for India because oh, sure. uh, before there's a term called the Hindu rate of the growth. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, in, in economic conferences, if you say, oh, this country is growing at Hindu rate of the growth, it doesn't have to be about India. It can be about country X. The people, oh, and everybody knows the head, oh, okay, 1%, right? So everybody knows, <laughs> sort of, uh, knows that. And, but now it's 7%. 7% we're talking about East Asian growth, yes. now, right? So with the savings rate, about half of the Chinese savings rate, with the investment rate, half about Chinese investment rate, right. It's you're growing, you know, you're growing 80% of the Chinese uh, uh, growth rate. That's actually not bad. Right? I, I take responsibility for this. I did ask him to be politically incorrect, and then he, he obliged. Was I politically correct? East Asian rate versus the, the Hindu rate. Yeah, I mean. These are technical terms. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, yeah. guys. Um, I, I, I'm a, 
a small in, personal investor in two Indian companies. Yeah. One is uh, uh, Flipkart. Yeah. One is Nadia. Oh, okay. yeah. Number one, number two, Indian e-commerce companies. Yeah. And when I, when I look at them, especially Snapdeal, and I see even other Indian VCs and uh, leading tech startups, they actually spend a lot of time coming to China yeah. and meeting with Chinese VCs, meeting with Chinese entrepreneurs. They actively want to learn and yeah. get knowledge about what has happened in China because they feel that a lot of big urbanization problems that they were trying to solve in India, somebody in China has solved a similar problem already. Yeah. And now the local adaptation would be very different for sure, but a lot of principles and lessons learned actually be quite valuable. It ha reminds me how the Chinese team used to come to Silicon Valley and right, learn from right, right. American companies. Is it happening the other way though? Are, are any of your, your portfolio companies here no, in China Alibaba, looking at? Alibaba, well, I don't know about Xiaomi is companies. number one. Yeah. Uh, Xiaomi is number one yeah. right. smartphone I, I know that in, they're, in India. As a market, it, but are they looking at it for sort of to learn management? I mean, there's got to be some reason why so many more Indians are making it into the senior management of big major Silicon oh, Valley companies. I think it's two different that, issues. Okay. I think, I think the, the, the Chinese company are looking at India as a market to expand. For sure. sure. Yeah. Yeah, that, I, that. Think, I think that there are more Indian executives who have done well in Silicon Valley that may, may never change, uh, at least not for a, not for a while. Um, but what I think, what partially because most uh, uh, successful, a lot of successful, not most, a lot of successful uh, promising Chinese engineers or product managers end up going back to China instead of staying here, stuck, right. stuck mm -hmm. it out. And they're, the, for the Indian uh, executives, being here has better payoff up until now. But as India grow, you could change. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about India is that more and more American executives who have done well in um, US, in Silicon Valley, are more willing to invest heavily into India. Like mm -hmm. Amazon is investing in India in a way that they never would dare to try mm -hmm. and waste, quote unquote, waste money and be mm -hmm. irrational for China. Mm -hmm. But look at the value market cap of JD.com, 80, 90 billion. Mm -hmm. That's what Amazon give up by oh. not being in China. So the, we see a lot more competition in India now between American companies Indian local startups and Chinese companies. Okay. That's Beyond India, do you think the other emerging markets around the world will look more like China or more like the U.S. as they develop? And how optimistic are you about the ability of Chinese companies to expand the, into those markets like Southeast Indonesia, Asia, yeah. Eastern Europe, Indonesia, um, Middle East, what North Africa? These are technology companies, not the uh, SOEs. Yeah, oh, technology I companies. Right? Yeah. I, I, should defer to hands. Based on what you have seen with China Lab and well, India Lab, what do you think? I think I think they the Chinese companies tend to. So I know a little bit more about Chinese companies in the U.S. than I do about Chinese companies in Indonesia. Uh, so the Chinese companies, unlike Japanese companies, which came to the U.S. in the 1980s, the Chinese companies tend to have a separate operation in the United States as compared with their home operations in China. The management team is separate. They typically have an American at the head of the U.S. operation, right? Some companies are, are not like that, but That's quite a few. Post. Yeah, key uh, posts. Key posts, right? Yeah. So, and they don't quite impose Chinese managerial method mm -hmm. on their U.S. operations, mm -hmm. right? Whereas if you compare that with Japan. Or Korea. Right? A Korea, right? Uh, Japan lean manufacturing, yep. right? Uh, zero inventory, yep. and they impose uh, even the jigong, uh, uh, you know, so the the, the morning exercise, the morning exercise right? right? The bowing, right? So right. the uh, you know, just imagine doing that in Ohio, right? So <laughs> and, and, yeah, and movie called Gung Ho, yes, Gung Ho, yeah, Gung Ho, that's right, Gung Ho, Gung Ho, yeah. yeah. So 
the Honda opened uh, its plant in Ohio in 1987, right? Imagine in Ohio, 1987, right? right with uh, uh, Americans there bowing, you know, to the boss, and they actually impose these things on right. their U.S. Uh, uh, factories, right. right? Chinese companies don't do that, so. Yeah, none of that 996 nonsense. Right? <laughs> <laughs> What's a 996? Yeah, you can tell Kaiser really does not subscribe to 996. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. Yeah, just nine so, to nine, six days a week. Oh, I see. Working out. Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, so I, I think there the Chinese uh, managerial approach is quite different, right? right? So right. It, it is, you know, I. Uh, for a time, I served on the, on the board of a Chinese investment company, and they pretty much left the company alone, mm-hmm. right? Rather than exercising an active uh, managerial voice, right? right? Uh, we can debate whether that's the right thing to do, but but that's what I see, right? right? So maybe when they go to Indonesia, they may be more hands-on. Uh, I, I I just don't know, but I do know that Alibaba is investing in India, Paytm, right? right? Paytm uh, and Alibaba yeah, also invests in Tokopedia Toko- in Indonesia oh, okay. and acquired yeah. Lazada. Yeah, so I, I don't really know how interventionist Alibaba is. It, it's mixed with, with uh, Tokopedia. They're not hands-on at all. Yeah. With Lazada, since it's 100% acquired, they're more hands-on. Okay. So both are happening. Yeah. Hey, cynical listeners, we want to thank this week's special sponsor, United Airlines. United is the number one airline flying between the U.S. and China with more flights to more destinations in China than any other U.S. carrier. It's 89 flights each week to China with service to Beijing, Shanghai, Chengdu, and Hong Kong. And United now offers its customers two free checked bags on flights to and from China and Hong Kong. You should also check out the great low fares they're now offering from the U.S. to China and to Hong Kong until June 10th. Visit united.com slash China and united.com slash Hong Kong for details. United is a founding member of Star Alliance, whose members include Air China, that means you get frequent flyer program reciprocity and benefits like airport lounge access, two free checked bags. You hear that, fan fan? You have no idea how happy my wife is about this. Now back to the show. How, how do you think the relationship between tech and government differs between the U.S. and China? I feel like in the U.S., Washington, D.C. is often at loggerheads with Silicon Valley, whereas in China, the interests of tech and the government seems to be more aligned. Do you agree with that? Well, I, I, I think in the U.S., uh, whether the loggerheads is the right word to use, I, I, I don't know, but there is a, uh, a distance between uh, Silicon Valley took... A pride in the fact that it is not located on the East Coast, right? right. So, and uh, but now they are now more realistic. Now uh, they have uh, Washington. Uh, everybody has uh, office operations. In, yeah, Washington and, and New York. Because 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 the government is going to regulate, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, what happened at Facebook, and mm-hmm. and so if you don't work with the government, the mm-hmm. government will come to you. That's right? right. And so I think even the tech sector in the U.S. has to be realistic about the role of the government. The government is not going to go away. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think, you know, whether that's good or bad, that's a separate discussion. The government is not going to go away. Right. And if I, anything, it could be even more active. Going it forward. could be even more active, right? So we talk about uh, uh, the, uh, the, the current wave of uh, technology producing, potentially producing huge winners but also a lot of losers, yes. right? So and the gap could be widened. The gap could be widened, right? So the government has to play a role. Yep. 
in China, um, I think, you know, if you look at Alibaba, maybe this is an old story uh, now, but Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu. It is absolutely true, as Hans pointed out, when they first developed, they didn't really have any meaningful relationship, relationship with the government, right? So right. Uh, Alibaba little. was backed by uh, SoftBank. But SoftBank, right? and the government did not and stop that And Tencent was backed by a South Naspers, African. Yeah. Uh, Naspers, yeah. from South Africa. That's right, yeah. Right. And Baidu, yeah. I, I, I don't... Uh, don't Baidu was mostly by VCs, all yeah. with US LPs. So, so all, the U, all the US, right? So not All US. The question is, now they are getting so big, right? Now they are getting so big, you know, Alibaba now is in finance and in all these areas, whether or not the government is going to get more involved, right? There is evidence that the government is getting more Showing involved, more interest to be more. Showing more interest in getting involved. So right. then how do you structure that relationship is going to be an interesting issue, right? Mm -hmm. You definitely don't want to get involved so far to kill them, mm -hmm. right? But on the other hand, they are doing so many things, the government has to sort of get involved, right? So that's one kind of involvement. The other kind of involvement that I see more of in China than I do in the United States is government-run venture capital funds invest very aggressively in early stage uh, startups, right? You don't see that in the United States. Right. Right? You have you know, one CIA fund, right? Uh, right. I, uh, oh, I, CIA fund? I can't yeah. tell. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So I can tell the fact I had never heard of it means that probably it's not happening very frequently, right? Uh, so, they're, they're, they're well, the, the, the U.S. Department of Energy has loan programs, right? right? right. Uh, but that's different from equity investments. Whereas in China, Shenzhen Capital, right? Uh, you know, they, there are a few R&B funds that raise money from there local There are quite governments. a few, and they're actually quite big. Mm -hmm. They're quite big. And, and I actually think if you look at that model, that model is closer to the Israel model than to the U.S. model mm -hmm. in Israel. Mm -hmm. Israel, mm -hmm. that's right. In the 1970s, mm -hmm. this is how they invested in the early startups. And jumpstart the uh, VC industry. Jumpstart the tech in industry in Israel. Not government as an investor, but the key difference that I see, maybe the difference is not as big, but but there could be a, a difference. The difference is that in the case of Israel, the government was a more of a passive investor. Mm -hmm. It relied on the judgment of the, of the- General partners. Yeah, the general partners, the right? General so managers the government advice. kind of took a back seat. Whereas in China, maybe the government is more active. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not uh, sure either. I, I don't I, think that they're- I don't think the government's more active, yeah. but uh, also to be, if I look at the playing field, of amongst the top 50 VCs in China, I would say probably 30 of them are U.S. backed, backed by U.S. Uh, limited LPs partners, U.S. Least, LPs, yeah, U.S. US investors. Okay. Um, yeah. Probably 20, the ratio is probably 20 of uh, R&B funds that are doing well. And of those 20, I would say less than, less than half are backed by some kind of government money. I see, okay. Uh, but I also think that um, it is not the wrong thing to do for the government to back these early startups. Early uh, well. uh, funds. Uh, early funds. Early, early stage funds, yes. Yeah. The, the reason is that, um, so, so we talk about China 2025, 20, so, so a lot of the industry China wants to develop are connected to manufacturing, you know, uh, energy, right. right? These are huge investments. Capital intensive. Right? Capital sectors. intensive uh, yeah. sectors. Yeah. I actually wish to see more of that in the U.S. Right. 
exactly uh, right. in the U.S. Right? right. So what you see is a lot of investments in internet related things, maybe in AI now and life science. Anything in between actually doesn't attract right. a lot but, of. Uh, uh, one one thing I do worry is that the skill side it takes to get money from government officials, whether it's in the U.S. and China, is a different skill set from designing best product, designing uh, best customer service, designing um, best um, you know uh, ecosystem. Yeah. So um, while I want to see government invest in the right funds. Um, in my heart of heart, I still like to see the private sector or insurance companies or sure. pension funds uh, or university endowments play a more active role, kind of the way that you, 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 you U.S. has. So I, I actually think that I, I agree with, with everything that you said. The only thing I would say, though, I think, in, for example, let's take DJI drones versus the U.S. drones as an example. I think where the U.S. drones lose out is not that there was no government funding supporting them to fight against DGI, because DGI doesn't have any government funding either in China. I think what's the big difference is that U.S. is lacking that manufacturing infrastructure. That's right. So that it's, it's not None helping, those, it's not helping those companies, that are, the sectors that are manufacturing dependent to, to do better. Yeah, so I, I actually think this is one of the huge advantages that China has. Exactly. The co-location between technology and manufacturing, mm -hmm. right? So if you look at around Boston, where do you see manufacturing? You right. don't see manufacturing. If you look around Silicon Valley, you don't see it's manufacturing. less and less. It is lack of manufacturing is okay for particular kind of technologies, right? Yeah, for Internet, software, software, or software or right? networking, so e Maybe life science, yeah. I'm not sure, right? But, but you know, energy, capital equipment, and, and semiconductors. And, and, and semiconductors, you really need both large-scale manufacturing mm -hmm. and small-scale manufacturing. Mm -hmm. uh, this even is even biotech. I mean, it's true. I mean, okay, maybe even biotech. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, China's manufacturing gene sequencing machines right now, and they're no longer. Right. So, so, so Shenzhen, Shenzhen. You know, there's no reason why Shenzhen cannot be a manufacturing version of Silicon Valley, right? right? So, it, there's a book uh, by actually an MIT graduate, uh, Bunny Huang, about uh, hardware. Innovations in Shenzhen, right? Yeah, he's and a famous hardware hacker. Really, he's really a famous uh, right. hardware hacker. He's written right. a lot about the Shanghai culture. And Shanghai culture, right. yeah. So, so, yeah. Shanghai is really interesting. So we th we tend to think about Shanghai as uh, just copying. What he says is that it's much more than copying. Yeah, right? It's incremental invest, uh, incremental innovations, on top of a basic model, and they make it a thousand times better. Right? That margin of improvement is all because of this incredible ecosystem of having a lot of technologists involved, a lot of manu uh, manufacturers involved. And a lot of and consumers. And a lot of consumers. So you right. can iterate yeah. and try many things. That's Tencent right. started with borrowing other people's products, basically, <laughs> right. and they call that micro-innovation. Right. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. 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 Well, let's talk a little bit about the impact of the so-called fourth industrial revolution uh, in the United States and in China. I mean, if you look at all the major technologies that are obviously going to be disruptive, I mean, we've already mentioned a few of these, you know, advanced robotics, AI, uh, genomics, and, and especially uh, gene editing, CRISPR-CA9 and things like that. The two countries that are really at the forefront are China and the United States, and it's the private sectors of both. They don't seem to really be talking to one another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and these are really important things where interoperability, standards, uh, where ethics issues really need to, to be uh, in, in autonomous driving, things like that. Um, all these things are going to be really important. Uh, is this an area where you, we're going to see uh, sort of 
divergence and in, in a lack of, of interoperability? Or are, do you think that this is a potential area for bilateral cooperation? Or does it even even matter? <laughs> oh, I think it matters yeah, tremendously. I, I hope yeah, it, so, I hope. and if you look at the AI, uh, there are some deep, profound socioeconomic implications with the arrival of uh, AI. You mentioned privacy, right? Well, Hans mentioned privacy, you know. With the impact on what, labor, right? What, yeah, so, so, but that's one set of issues. Right. And, but that, that kind of thing can be country-specific, right? Uh, Chinese uh, may not value privacy as much as Americans. But in terms of the effect on labor market, right? right? And you know, autonomous driving, yep. right? So you know, China is still a, a, a you know, 1.4 billion people and a lot of laborers, and, uh, and there are still farmers. And, and so if you just sort of uh, think about how you make this transition from low income or middle income to high income, you still need conventional industrialization, right? You have employment and all of that. So failure to talk to each other, I think, and to think long-term about the rise of, so one of the things that I, that I read about you know, China 2025 and you know, the, the visions, you read about the visions, you read about the industries, you read about the money, you know, all these things, you read about IP uh, strategy and, and, and financing strategy. What you don't read is the implications on society, mm -hmm. right? The implications right. on labor Job market. Placement, displacement. And this is remarkable to me, right? So if you read um, Marvin Minsky's uh, uh, work on AI, he was an MIT professor yep. going back to the 1960s, father of uh, AI, he began to talk about these things back in back the 1960s, then. right? right? right. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I do believe that lack of that conversation, by the, by the way, MIT now has a task force to study the effect of AI on uh, labor market. I'm uh, on that committee. And it's a, it's a, except me, everybody else is impressive on that committee. It's just you know, <laughs> the, the disciplines the committee represents, uh, it's a systematic effort try to understand and anticipate these. I just don't see any of that in China, right? right? Um, yeah. I was just that I remember when Amazon Go, the amend convenience store by Amazon opened, every article mentioned how many cashier jobs will be lost in the US. Whereas when Bingo Box or portfolio company in China opened their amend convenience store, and they have 300 of those now, um, no, none of those articles in China talked about, mentioned even like the word of cashier yeah. jobs. It's just less <laughs> of a concern there. I, I, I think what, what, what explains that cavalier attitude though? I'm not sure it's a cavalier, is that as a, as a, as a country, um, there's a lot more people who are optimistic on how technology growth in China will narrow the gap between China and U.S. and, and some of the other countries. And they have and plenty of reason to believe that. I mean, they've, they've only seen life improve as technology with, 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 improved. With, with, with they the see a internet. perfect correlation between these two things. Correct. So far, that's the case. Right. And now, uh, as it go, continues to happen, will, will the government do a, uh, a decent job of help, helping to solve that? and kind of keep whatever's not working hush-hush. And it's, uh, it's easier to have that transition under an authoritarian government. You could argue yeah. that that can happen um, uh, faster and people get used to it 
faster. I'm sure uh, Yasha has some uh, a response to that. Well, no, no, I, I no I, fan I, of authoritarianism. Yeah, I'm not a fan of authoritarianism, and, and but I also think that I agree with Hans on this cultural difference. When I first came to the U.S., I was surprised to see movies such as Blade Runner, right. which portrays this very dystopian dark future, future. dystopian, right? right? right. So right. you got to see Black Mirror, <laughs> a Black Mirror, yeah. So and, and so there's it's very interesting in Western societies. Uh, I don't really know why. Uh, I should, you know, invest time in learning about that. Was Frankenstein? The, Frankenstein, it's, it's yeah. So evil scientists, a right? Lot so of healthy, working in the basement, right. you know, trying to destroy the world, right. and, and there's a lot of that in the Western culture. What, well, Whereas there's a lot of what, well, still a lot of celebration for Renaissance and scientific revolution. All that, both kind of uh, both respect and admiration and uh, distrust. Well, I have a, a book you can start with. It's by a philosopher who used to be at, at NYU in Shanghai. Her name is Anna Greenspan. She wrote mm -hmm. a book called okay. Shanghai Future. Right. And she, she starts it off pointing out something really interesting. At the 1937 World's Fair yep. and at the 2010 yep. Expo, yep. In, in, or Expo in, in, in Shanghai, Shanghai. Yeah. both had GM pavilions. One was GM, another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, both were General Motors pavilions. Both of them were about future cities. Right. And you know, that was third, 1937, and it was called Futurama. In the time since, <laughs> Futurama has, is, yeah. is a byword just for cheesy sort of, you know, oh, my flying, oh, where's my jetpack? And I mean, spiral towers and right, stuff right, like right. that. And in, in China, they're still in earnest yeah, embrace yeah. of this idea right. of that futurity, uh, you know, is technologically driven and it is a betterment of humanity. And right. it is, yeah. it's really interesting. It, right? I think it, I think there's a lot of scar from the Opium War, from other... Uh, things that happen in the 19th century that make people feel like technology is good. Without technology, we will, you know, be defeated again. And that kind of imprint is extremely, extremely strong. We're still embarrassed about the boxers, right? <laughs> but, I, but I also think that it's more general than, than that. Yeah. It's actually more general beyond technology. In the Western culture, there is always a obsession with the downside, right? Look at what lawyers do, right? You know, economics, Ma it's all about risk. scarcity, right? So right. trade-off and, and, and all of that. You always want to think about the downside, right? And then devise institutions. Democracy is actually to guard against downside, yep. right? Check and balance yep. and, and, and all Take of the that. least of all evils. Yeah, whereas in the Chinese culture, there's not this similar forward thinking about the downside. There's more glorification about unification. There's a glorification, glorification that's of right, being that's an right. empire, yeah. so, of being so, strong and prosperous. Yeah, 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 Whereas yeah, in the yeah. West, it's a lot about, hey, this government is bad, yeah. or the, 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 the king is bad. Yeah. Let's make sure he doesn't you know, yeah. adversely impact us too much. Yeah. It's very different ethos. In, in China, in China the, 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 the sentiment goes like this. Uh, Okay, this king is bad, but next king is will be better. Be, will be great, right? So, there's <laughs> so always hope the next guy will be better. But you don't change the system itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember like watching the Olympics in, in Beijing in um, Summer Olympics in, in oh, two, yeah, 2008. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The opening ceremony, Zhang Yimou yeah. had 20,000 people all yeah, moving yeah. unison. I'm like, dude, I, I wouldn't want to show that for the rest of the world. Right, because it's intended to inspire, but it really intimidates. Intimidates yeah. a lot of people. Like, oh my god, you have all these people who are brainwashing to all move in the same direction. <laughs> that is not a good thing you want to show about China. But it's just very different. And, and, and actually, all the Chinese entrepreneurs I back, I know, they love that show. Right. Yeah, oh, yeah. They and they're, they're modern. They, they, they're, they're doing internet stuff. But they, they feel that is very natural. It's very different ethos, very different values. Absolutely. So I, I think we should have a broader conversation, right? 
you know, the privacy issues, how we think about technology, how we think about all these things, collectivism, vis-a-vis yes. right? -vis individualism. Yeah, we don't have enough of those uh, conversations, which is too bad. Professor Huang, you did a lot of research on the relationship between talent and economic development. I wonder, there are a lot of like Liu学生 like me who've gone back and became Haigui sea turtles um, and joined tech companies or started them. What do, you, what do you think are factors that make them successful in China? Because not all of them are successful. They have a lot of adjustments to go through after they go back. Um, well, so I, I don't know the individual cases, right? So I think as a cohort, the... Um, the Haigui cohort is going to be a very important for uh, China. Going and forward. Going forward, oh, absolutely. Right? So I, I think, but, but the key thing is, I think people like you, Zara, have to make a decision, right? Uh, earlier you talked about JD, 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 right? JD. So right. how local do you go, right? Do you want to be? And do you go all the way to the local things and lose your sort of Western educated. Or globalist. Yeah, globalist, right? So I would argue that China needs more of a globalist uh, perspective mm -hmm. and ideas than more MIT students, more Harvard students going back playing local guys, <laughs> right? So China is not short of local people, right? But China is I, sort I, of I, global I think perspective. We, we want them to have experience in both markets. So you don't necessarily well, but, want but, them but, like but, the, the, no, no, the more but, the more the more of the returnees have experience in both no, local no. markets and uh, U.S. markets. We think the better it is. No, but there's a difference between experiencing local things and then totally agreeing with them. Sure. Right? So absolutely. So so I I yes experience. You know so. It's I okay could, to occasionally eat huo guo in Chengdu with your shirt off on a hot summer day. Is that what but you do, Kaiser? I do, but uh, but <laughs> but but don't live that life, right? Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> oh, let me try that next time. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take you. To Sometimes the I was like, I'm not going to be bothered. <laughs> well, Professor Huang, thank you so much for joining us. And Kaiser, it's always fun to have you. And thank you so much to everyone in the audience for being here with us on a Saturday night. Yeah, Saturday night. Yeah. I'm impressed. All right, hey, thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.